Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, the city passed its budget. The big news? It was three weeks early. A local reporter will tell us what we need to know. Plus, magazine executive and consultant Emil Wubikin on making space for gay black men in media and beyond. And reimagining Noah's Ark from the perspective of his wife. It's going to be a lot going on today. Hi, and welcome to the show. I'm Ashley Ford, taping today from Singapore. Just kidding. I'm totally not in Singapore. Still here in dull old Brooklyn, immersed in my own talks about Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Is he actual hot or dad hot? Now there's a conversation with some substance. Not much else happening around these parts other than the continued roundup of immigrants, including a pizza delivery man. We await a report on former Mayor Rudy Giuliani's porn consumption to be furnished by the lawyer for the porn actress Rudy recently disparaged on TV. And we've got a report that's just been furnished, maybe less, salacious, maybe less salacious but no less toxic, on the city's housing authority and how it misled all of us about the terrible conditions in its properties. Right now, when we talk city budget with reporter for City and State, Jeff Colton, who's joining us by phone. Thanks for taking the time, Jeff. Oh, no problem. It's an exciting time in city politics. Turns out it is a very exciting time. Jeff, a lot of people, if you ask them, might say the city budgets are kind of boring. Why should we even be paying attention to this one? Ah, well, if you are a uh, New Yorker, this is your money, you know? Mm -hmm. It's good to know how it's being spent. The big announcement yesterday was that the mayor reached a deal on the budget with the city council, which means that, uh, you know, this big discussion is what's in what's out. And the big story of the day was fair fares. And that's uh, half-priced metro cards for low-income New Yorkers. There's a certain uh, income threshold. I think it's around a uh, family of four making less than $25,000 a year. So it's very low income. If somebody qualifies, then they will get access to a half-priced metro card. So instead of the two you are going to be paying about $1.37 per swipe. Wow. $1.37 per swipe. That was there something also there about jobs in the budget? Jobs in the budget, absolutely, yeah. Well, there is a uh, the summer youth employment program is always a big discussion. You know, the city council wants to uh, fund as many jobs as possible, and the mayor is always uh, a little bit concerned about the price. That's how it's been mm -hmm. going for the past few years. But the summer youth employment program is uh, for students to get summer jobs that are actually funded by the city. It's kind of like an internship. They get some uh, experience working in the real world. It keeps them busy during the summer months. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, everybody benefits from this thing. In the past, uh, it'll be the last year, the city funded 70,000 jobs for uh, young New Yorkers. Wow. This year, uh, City Councilman Jumani Williams, a Brooklynite, he pushed for uh, as many as 100,000 jobs, and they kind of settled for a lower number, 75,000. That's yeah. what was uh, decided in the budget yesterday. So 75,000 young students will uh, be getting jobs during this upcoming summer funded by the city. And I saw that there's more money for litter baskets, for litter cleanup. You know, it's a pretty small item. The budget is $89 billion. I mean, it's bigger oh, than most yeah. states. In right. Every <laughs> state except for our own state, New York and California. Right. In the $89 billion budget, the city divide, decided to devote an extra, I believe it was $3.5 million towards trash cleanup. Right. But uh, I think this is going to have uh, actually a, a pretty big impact for people walking down the street. I mean, that's, that's money that's devoted specifically towards uh, cleaning out those street trash cans more often. Right. I mean, way too often you walk by them and you see 
They're just you know, overfilling. Cups, yeah. Slices of pizza, whatever, all against the ground. Ideally, this money is going to uh, help uh, make that happen much less often. I also saw city council member Carlos Menchaca said there's a victory for the city's immigrants in here. What's he referring to? Uh, well, you know, <laughs> I'll have to check with Councilman Menchaca about it. He may, very well be talking, he may very well be talking about the fair fares. Um, obviously, right. many new immigrants to New York uh, really will qualify for that, that benefit coming from lower-income households. And, of course, a big issue that's been going on in New York City is funding for legal aid mm -hmm. for immigrants that have gotten into trouble with the law. Uh, there's been a debate going back and forth about basically whether to fund legal aid services for every single undocumented immigrant or only undocumented immigrants, which are accused of certain less extreme crimes. Right. Meaning, uh, basically, the mayor, Mayor de Blasio, has been really hesitant to uh, pay for the lawyer for somebody accused of murder because he says, you know, well, basically, they don't deserve it. Whereas many city council members, Carlos Menchaca included, he uh, believes that, you know, innocent till proven guilty, we should be funding lawyers for everybody. They should be given right. a fair chance here in a court of law. So the decision there, you know, I mean, I'll be honest, nobody talked about it at the deal yesterday. So I'm going to have to look into that one and, uh, you know, find out exactly where this ended up. Yeah, looking forward to that. Maybe we can have you back on uh, when, you know, we have that information, because that's important. And I also just, you know, I think that's the stuff people really want to hear, in addition to everything else you shared with us today, Jeff. Don't think you wasted your time. You didn't. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us and breaking this down for us. Thank you very much, Ashley. Coming up, Emil Wilbekin will tell us about his new venture, Native Sun. In our continued coverage of Pride Month, we're joined by a lion, a man who's been a fixture at the top of the country's black print media for nearly three decades, including Essence and Vibe, to name just a couple. Now, he's begun a new venture called Native Son, a platform intended to elevate gay black men and their contributions to society, media-related or otherwise. But he'll do a better job of explaining it than I can. Welcome Amel Wobkin to 112BK. Hello, Emil. Hi, how are you? It is so fantastic to have you here. I feel like I have either been reading you or, not reading you that way, but reading your work, <laughs> okay. or seeing you um, provide commentary on different mm -hmm. shows since I was very young. Like, yes. you are actually very much a legacy media person yes. to me, and I think to lots of people. But why is it that you decided to get involved in media in the first place? Because even though I think you might be familiar to people, I don't mm -hmm. think they know a lot about your background. So I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, mm -hmm. and I had a great love for art and fashion design as a kid. Mm -hmm. And my parents were like, you need to figure out something practical. My, my father's West Indian and was a lawyer. My mother was a lawyer. She's from Des Moines, Iowa, so very Midwest sensibilities. Right. So they were like, the creativity is great, mm -hmm. but what are you going to do that's practical? Right, exactly. So I had a speech teacher uh, in high school, and she said, you're great at public speaking. Why don't mm -hmm. you consider communications? And so that's what kind of led me to, um, I went to Hampton University, mm -hmm. I studied mass media arts, and it was there, I thought I was going to go more like an advertising route, mm -hmm. and got bitten by the journalism bug um, through an internship that actually placed me back in Cincinnati at the Cincinnati Inquirer. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 
I love that history, and I love that, you know, you were able to take your creativity that was already natural, that you already, you know, had, and channel it into something, you know, that actually worked out. Some, yeah. That doesn't work out for everybody. Right, right. Not everybody who's creative gets the chance to channel it that way. Yes, but at yes. what point among, you know, the mastheads, the, the media credits, mm -hmm. at what point did you feel okay to embody your voice as a gay man? So, I guess when I became editor-in-chief of Vibe, mm. um, I was already out, and I had been at Vibe since its inception. So, I was associate editor, style editor, became fashion director. And, you know, I would bring boyfriends to parties and introduce mm -hmm. them as my boyfriend. People knew I was gay. Like, it wasn't a secret. I had right. done some advocacy work at that point. But when I became editor-in-chief, I was like, oh, this is going to be a big deal because right. I'll be the first black gay, openly gay editor-in-chief of a national magazine. And this was in the 90s, correct? This was, yes. This was in 98. Wow. Wow. So to be... A black gay male mm -hmm. editor in chief of a magazine of what a lot of people consider like obviously vibe a hip hop magazine. A hip hop. Magazine. That, yeah, a hip hop <laughs> yeah, magazine. A hip -hop like magazine. how like how did you navigate that space? I mean, did you ever have issues or you know because people I think like to think that in a space like that you'll have more issues than mm -hmm. in real life. But mm -hmm. I sometimes think in creative space mm -hmm. the rules change a little bit. So my theory for myself was, you know, hip-hop is all about keeping it real. Mm. So I'm going to keep it real. And right. what's real is that I'm a black gay man and I'm out. Mm -hmm. And um, we're going to incorporate those types of stories in the magazine, and that will be reflected in the diversity of the staff, the writers, and things like that. So for the most part, people were super respectful. I definitely heard whispers and mumblings behind my back mostly fueled through the advertising team mm. that people were trying to use that as a slight against Vibe from a competitive standpoint. Mm. Like, well, he's, you have a gay editor-in-chief. And I'm like, well, how wow. homophobic and crazy is that? <laughs> right. That's absolutely homophobic yeah. and crazy. I don't like that at all. Um, you also, you've had an article run Monday, in essence, that yes. touched on, you know, what we've lost as a black community. And we haven't really reckoned, mm -hmm. I don't think, mm -hmm. as, specifically as a black community, with what we lost in the AIDS epidemic. Yes. When we lost so many lives, so many creatives lives yes. to that terrible disease like how do you see us dealing with that reckoning can you see a future for it well I think that I, I'm really pushing people to live their truth mm -hmm. and live their stories and that's partially what Native Son is about is right. um, celebrating the great men who came before us um, honoring them, recognizing them, but also giving the men that are still alive mm -hmm. their flowers while they're here. Yes. But it's hard for the younger generation because they don't understand how impactful and devastating and dark the AIDS epidemic was. I mean, right. you know, growing up at that time and, you know, you're watching the news and you're hearing about gay men dying left and right, mm -hmm. and you kind of seeing people disappear from your community or from your, your circles or even just creative circles, mm -hmm. and not knowing if it will affect you. Right. So being Absolutely. terrified to have sex because mm -hmm. you're like, oh, that could be a death sentence. Mm -hmm. And it still feels like a death sentence in many ways for black gay men because our rates of HIV and AIDS infections now are higher than any other group in right. the country and I would probably argue the world. Right. 
Can you tell me a little bit? I mean, one of the things that you just said earlier mm -hmm. um, was about giving people their flowers while they're here. Yes. Which I love. I love that mm -hmm. term. Do you think Native Sun is an attempt to do that, to give this yes. community our, like, the flowers while they're here? Yes. It's, it's definitely about inspiration and empowerment for black gay men. Mm -hmm. The name is based on James Baldwin's Notes of a Native Son. Mm -hmm. um, so he's kind of our icon. But we have uh, annual Native Son Awards where we honor Mavericks in the community. So the first year in 2016, mm -hmm. we honored um, DeRay McKesson from Black Lives yeah. Matters, Don Lemon from CNN, and George C. Wolf, the Broadway producer and director. Mm -hmm. Last year, we honored Kende Wiley, the artist, Reggie Van Lee, the philanthropist, mm -hmm. and Kyle Hagler, who's the president of Next Modeling Agency. And so these are men who are mavericks in their career, but also in the community. They live their lives out loud, mm -hmm. but they've given back and made a difference. So I want to celebrate these men. You know, when I was starting to do research for Native Son, it was hard to find beautiful photographs mm. of Marlon Riggs. It's hard to find great photographs of Lee Daniels. Yeah, absolutely. And that's sad, you know, and you're looking for pictures of Elin Harris or Willie Smith. I mean, Willie Smith, there's a little more because he was in fashion, mm -hmm. but there's these men. I mean, Alvin Ailey, there's some, but not very many. And right. so I also, you know, in the future, want to create a platform where we're archiving mm. the visuals and stories of these men and maybe even their their actual archives, because I think it's very important that the younger generation that comes mm -hmm. behind us has a place to go and look and learn and know that they come from this great lineage of powerful, brilliant, beautiful men. History. So is it a platform? Is it going to be articles, photos? Mm -hmm. Is it going to be videos? Like, I'm, I'm just, I'm so excited yeah. for everything that it <laughs> could be. Excited, because yeah. when I hear, like, when you talk about it and the mm -hmm. premise of it, to me, this doesn't just sound, it doesn't just sound like a platform. It sounds like a resource. Right. So it's a combination of both. I call it a movement and a platform. Mm -hmm. um, it's really a movement to have black gay men love themselves and mm -hmm. see themselves in their fullness um, and to accept their wounds as well as their wins. Mm -hmm. And, I think you know, we have a lot of conversations around blackness, masculinity, identity, and then also HIV and AIDS, but also how are we talking to each other intergenerationally? How do we have conversations with millennials and right. with men in their 80s? So eventually there will be, hopefully this year, a content platform that will be conversations, that'll be voices, videos, podcasts, really, really bringing the voice and the, the subjects that are important to mm -hmm. us as black gay men to life. And how do you see this, or do you see this at all, as different from what you were doing on the editorial side of magazines and publications mm -hmm. in different places for, you know, your decades in the industry before? So I think the blessing is that I have done all that media work and mm -hmm. journalism work and really know how do you build a brand. Mm -hmm. You know, I've done a lot of branding work. So from the name to we have a, a partnership with Bloomingdale's right now where we have T-shirts and baseball caps. Yeah. That that are Native Sun branded and part of the proceeds go to the Native Sun Foundation. And that is basically from my, my media background, like mm -hmm. knowing like, okay, so what things do we need to put in this to make it successful? How does the social media speak to the audience? 
I've actually been overwhelmed by the reaction. So many people have come to me. I mean, I was reading DM messages on the way here, and people were sending me notes like, thank you for existing mm -hmm. and for sharing your truth so I don't have to live in shame. Right. And so if I can touch one person, that's amazing. It seems like we're touching much more than that. Mm -hmm. So it's just taking all the storytelling skills that I've learned, all the kind of marketing and branding things that I've learned along the way, and putting that into this community of black gay men. What do you want the legacy of Native Son to eventually be? I want the legacy of Native Son to galvanize the black gay community, empower the black gay community, so that they realize that they are whole and that they matter, and so that it'll inspire them to go to higher heights and to, to be a strong community that are great citizens in this world. Right. And I think that we're already seeing that, right? We're Absolutely. seeing the way, um, like, the art makers and mm -hmm. the thinkers and the people who are driving political policy, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, it, it, like, the people who are doing the work are already there. It's just yes. a matter of lifting them up and giving them and room. And turning the lights on. Turning the lights on so that everybody gets a good look at them. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Amel, this has been fantastic. Honestly, I can't tell you what an honor it is to have you here Thank for you me for personally. Me. Um, but I'm so excited about Native Sun, and I can't wait to see where it goes, and I can't wait to be as supportive of it as possible. Thank you so much. How do people find it? So uh, our biggest platform is Instagram, mm -hmm. so it's at Native Sun now on Instagram and also on Twitter, and Native Sun now on Facebook. Fantastic. Thank you, Amel. Thank you for having me. Since the beginning of time, or almost that far back, we've all heard and retold the story of Noah's Ark, two by two and all that, how he saved the animal kingdom, including us humans, from cataclysm. It's an apt metaphor for these times. We need a savior, but I digress. In this oldest of narratives, has anyone ever asked what Noah's wife was thinking? Well, our next guest has. She's the composer of the opera Noah's Ark to be performed at the River to River Fest this coming weekend. We're happy to have her with us to provide a little taste. Marissa Michelson, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much so for being here. So happy to be here. here. Tell me about how did the, what inspired this opera? How right. were you inspired to work on this? Well, I wrote this with Royce Fabrek, the librettist, mm -hmm. and we were discussing different projects, and we'd both been interested in, in the idea of Noah's Ark, but at the time, we were inspired by all of the flooding that's been mm. happening and ideas of global warming. And we thought that telling the story of Noah's Ark in a basic way, in a kind of archetypal way, would be useful and, and relevant, resonant right now. Talk to me about that, resonant yeah. right now. Like, how are the themes in this opera specifically mm. relevant right now? Is it just global warming or are there other elements? Especially right. the fact that, you know, we're getting so much of this from the wife's perspective, yeah. who, to be perfectly honest, I gotta admit, didn't even know her name was right. Nama. It's really not, actually. It's oh, just an really? invented name. I mean, she doesn't have a name. Really? Yes, and that's partly what's interesting. It's that once we were interested in this story, it became impossible, at least for me, to 
tell a, a story again of Noah, mm. the patriarch, shepherding the humans to their next right. phase. Right. So then it, it just naturally became a question of, what about his wife, who mm -hmm. we've never even heard of? And she's not named, you know, and she's just kind of part of that experience. But mm -hmm. I was interested what... What was her role? And, and even more than that, it wasn't how can we retell this story, but how can we use this story of Noah's Ark as inspiration and tell the story again? And who do we want at the center of that story? Right. It's not Noah right now. It's, not it's right now. Naama. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and what do you think, you know, one of the, when I'm pitching something or writing something or, you know, when I was becoming a writer, one of the things that my mm. professors and instructors always told me to think about is why you specifically mm. are right to write this story. Mm. And that, you know, and that it's not something you have to justify to anybody right. else, but you should be thinking about that. Why do you yeah. think you are the right person to work on this one? Well, there's a few reasons, and part of it is content and part of it is form. And starting with the form, it's that this was meant originally when I was commissioned to do this piece. It was meant to be written for a community in mm. Long Island, a very specific community. Right. And in this community, it's uh, they have many different musical and cultural traditions. Mm -hmm. So there was a gospel choir out there, a Jewish group, wow. a huge Hispanic community. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was commissioned to create a piece to fit all of these musical traditions. Wow. And so... From that perspective, it felt like, what is a story that in its container can hold a lot of different musical traditions? Mm -hmm. And Noah's Ark has that because of all the different animals coming on board. It has a lot of space for many different people and children as well. Yes. High school, high school group, high school choir. Stuyvesant High School is going to be performing in this, so we wow. have about 110 uh, students singing in just that choir. I mean, there's going to be hundreds wow. of singers. So, so anyway, that was already part of the form of it, as well as the fact that, for me, as a Jewish person, I feel like I can comfortably go back into my own tradition mm -hmm. and find inspiration from those stories. So, in fact, wow. a lot of what I've done as a composer is take take stories that are from the Bible and mm -hmm. from my own cultural history and then use them as just tiny, tiny seeds of inspiration. Mm -hmm. And it feels comfortable to me. So for that reason. And then it became an interesting question of Naama and right. who would she who be? Who would she be? Yeah. What, what would she say? What would she feel? How right. will she sing? And that was the question. That's fantastic. Yeah. I, I like this because this is like... Like you're an artist, and this is like the mm. deep work of being an artist that mm. I feel like people don't talk about enough are these considerations and these questions. Mm. Um, you've mm. said your specialty is helping singers find more freedom and artistry in their work. Mm. Are there aspects of this opera specifically that were driven mm. by the singers? By the singers. Mm -hmm. Everything that I ever write is always driven by the idea of singing. Mm. Everything that I write across different genres is about the vocalist. Right. So I have an ensemble of singer movers and we explore how singing lives in the body. And mm -hmm. I write opera, musical theater, music theater, but the center of everything is about singing. And then I teach singing. Right. And I sing. So one of the things that I think is true and I've heard from people who sing my work is that inherent in the music I write, there is a calling for a certain amount of freedom. Mm. So 
the way that the melodic lines move and the way that they relate to each other calls forth, at least allows for, the possibility of great surrender of the singer and of a lot of ownership that the singer can take over the over inventing their music in the moment. Right. So, for example, it's not it's not written in a way that's supposed to be sung a certain way and supposed right. to stay that way each time. What's really interesting to me is allowing the singer to enter a process where they feel like in the moment of singing they are improvising the material and that it's coming from their own body wow. and from them. I love that. I really, <laughs> yeah. really love that. And we yeah. actually, we have a clip we're going to play. Great. We, um, and we talked a little bit about it. Can you tell me a little bit about this Sure. This is, this is a tiny clip from the piece in this grand hour-long oratorio mm -hmm. that's called The Rainbow. And the rainbow is a, a ten-minute piece, and it goes through all the different colors of the rainbow with music, with mm -hmm. voices. And the clip you're going to hear is when we get to Violet, mm -hmm. and the Master Voices Choir is singing. That was beautiful. Thank you. That was so beautiful. Thank I you. loved that. And it's part of a 10-minute piece called yes. Rainbow, and yes. that's when we get to Viola. Yes. Oh, it sounds amazing. I'm obsessed. Thank I you. Tell you. I'm so excited. It really is something extraordinary to hear hundreds of people sing, sing I your music. I love it. I and it's going to be in the park, it. and it's going to be quite an experience. It's going to be fantastic. <clears throat> so how do people come see it? So there, this is going to be this Sunday, Father's Day, June 17th at 7 p.m. Mm -hmm. um, but you can also go earlier and do a whole art project in the park with, mm -hmm. if you have kids, your whole families can come and then the right. animals will be placed throughout the park. <gasps> bring a blanket, bring food, have a picnic. Do they need and tickets? No tickets. No it's tickets. totally free. Fantastic. No tickets, just show up and... It is going to be remarkable. Like I said, there's going to be a gospel choir, mm -hmm. uh, over 100 people in the youth choir, over 100 people in the Master Voices choir, a shul choir, a wow. bunch of soloists, the Tony Award winner Victoria Clark as the oh. soloist, and just so it's not instruments. to be missed. Not to be missed. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for you. having me. Thank you. What a pleasure. It's been my pleasure. And that's the show for today. Tomorrow, Jarrett Murphy will be back to talk local politics with a candidate for Congress and a cookbook from the chef and founder of the Bay Ridge Institution, Tannerine. Hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford. 
and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hagasak and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. And our executive producers are Assis Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.